Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Pat Nemmers with thoughts on experiencing the joy of ongoing humility. And I think to be able and to be willing to go back there and tell some of those stories that don't put you in a great light, but they do demonstrate the fact that you're willing to express your humanness, your struggle, your gratitude for God, bringing people into your life that helped you see see yourself better because you saw God better. Those are all ways in which we cultivate humility after our humiliating circumstance. And I think it's necessary in our life. Pat Nemmers, next. It seems it's part of being human to have memories which are humiliating. Things we've perhaps done or said which were awkward, embarrassing, shameful, and even sinful. While our typical response is to try to forget them or push them out of our minds, Pastor Pat Nemers urges us not to do that. He says they can help make us humble and encourage others in the process. He pastors Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa, and is author of the new book, Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. Well, Pastor Nemers, what are retractions? Well, retractions are just uh, basically, I, I took, I actually took the name from, uh, from a very obscure book that Augustine, you know, the church father that virtually everybody under the umbrella claims, you know, but he, you know, he wrote a book in his early 70s, you know, after the one, the, you know, institutes that he, that he wrote back in, the, in his 20s. He wrote a book in his 70s called Retractionaceous, which was basically his modification is what they really were of some of his beliefs. He didn't it wasn't really repenting of anything necessarily, but it was that idea that I got the word retractions. And the idea is 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 just that to to recognize the sins that you've committed, uh, confess them, forsake them so far, so normal. Right. Mm -hmm. But then to keep on confessing them. Uh, openly uh, after the fact, not because you're culpable of those sins anymore, because you're not, you've been forgiven of them. But in order to continue to cultivate humility in your own life, as well as those that you are interacting with. So that's sort of the basis and the operational meaning that I have, uh, operative meaning behind the word retractions. And it allows people kind of uh, insight into at least one person yourself of how God has used these times of uh, call them sin, repentance, confession, and how uh, you he has allowed you to cultivate humility yeah. in, in your own life, and it's an example for others who may be walking the same path. That's exactly right, and of course, I that's why I, I dedicated the book to uh, an, another obscure name. A, Abe Miller is our administrative pastor. Used to be our used to be our youth pastor, and. Hmm. He's kind of like a son to me. He basically runs the day-to-day operation of our church. But I, I jokingly said in the introduction, I, or in the uh, in the dedication, that I I thank the Lord for him because uh, because of his boldness that kept the book from being a four-volume series. <laughs> I think any of us, uh, if we were to sit down and write something like this, it would be multiple volumes for sure. Well, tell us, we have certainly time for some examples from your book, from your own life, the issue of zeal. 
you, you quote scripture showing someone who was zealous, and you were zealous, as are most new Christians, and yet if it's not coupled with some other things, it can lead to mistakes. Can you kind of give us an idea of of where you saw all of that happen, how the Lord led you? Yeah, the very first chapter, you know, the, the, you know, the problem of zeal without knowledge. And, you know, when I became a Christian, I, I was, I was that guy. I was that right out of the shoot guy, you know, the, the proverbial bull in the China shop. I was witnessing to everybody and, and going beyond my understanding on certain things from time to time. And, uh, I'll, I, I, I made some colossal mistakes in the process, but I'll never, I'll never forget sitting in the car. I was a passenger uh, in a car driving to uh, actually to Bible college. I was taking classes a couple hours away and I was with another guy who was a deacon in the church that I, would, I attended. And I made some off comment about what the Bible had to say. I was actually holding a Bible in my lap when I said it. And this guy was a passionate follower of Christ at the time. And he looked at me and he said, where does it say that numbers? And I go, well, I joke. I say, well, it says it somewhere in here, you know? And he goes, don't you ever tell me something unless you can give me a book, chapter and verse. Now that sounds pretty rough, but I remember, but he meant it. Yeah. He meant it. And by the way, Bill, um, uh, I'm passionate about evangelism. I'm passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about discipleship. And the second verse I give every brand new Christian. And I, 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 Encourage your listeners to consider this. The first verse I give every brand new Christian is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. The second verse I give them is actually a slice of a verse from Romans 4 and verse 3, where the apostle Paul, that's where, you know, was Abraham saved, you know, by circumcision Mm. or by faith? Mm -hmm. And Paul says in Romans 4 verse 3, what does the scripture say? That's the question. And that's what I ask every new Christian to memorize, that little line. What does the scripture say? Whenever a question comes their way, the very first thing I want them to ask themselves is what does the scripture say? When I was young, I was, I, you know, we kind of get ahead of ourselves sometimes. Yeah. And that's what I did. I had to learn to stay tethered to the word of God. And the best way I would do that would be to be in the word of God so that I could answer the question, what does the scripture say? Another one uh, is uh, the the uh, learning to, if you will, love your neighbor with the so-called liberal church next door. You didn't uh, say who they were or where the, right. what, what they were affiliated right. with, but right. t- tell us that story and how it, how it applies to retractions. Well, you would go to one of the most embarrassing stories <laughs> in the book, wouldn't you, Bill? I mean, you really want me to cultivate humility in my life. I want to thank you for that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> So I pastored a little Baptist church out in the country up in northern Iowa. It was uh, Holmes Baptist Church. I loved that experience. But again, a brand new Christian. I was saved in 1982. I was pastoring that church in the fall of 1986. Now, that probably sounds like I was some kind of a stump preacher, but I really wasn't. By then, I was, I was uh, you know, really not just zealously witnessing and preaching, but studying the Word of God and I was actually still a student, but while we were right there connected, almost connected to another mainline church, we weren't mainline, we were a, we were a very conservative uh, gospel preaching church, but 
right next to us was a mainline church. And uh, there was virtually no demarcation, let's put it that way, between our churches, you know, uh, other than maybe a slight little little line of gravel. In fact, there was history that said, there was tradition that said that sometime before my time, there was a, a cable that had been laid between the churches so that if one had a wedding or a funeral where whereas they needed more room, the other church could supply, uh, you know, the, the room for them to, you mm-hmm. know, for the overflow. Yeah. I jokingly say in the book, uh, I was such a fundamentalist <laughs> at the time. I think if I didn't know where that wire is, I would have cut it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this so, is right next door. It's right next door. Right next door. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right, right next door. And, uh, and there were some very fine people there and some that became friends, uh, uh, not close, but people we got to know. So it was, it was a midweek service. Uh, and mid, this is a church that probably at the time had 50 or 60 people and our, the church I pastored, the midweek service might get 15 on a really good night. We'd have 20. And, uh, and, uh, that church next door had burnt down just prior to me coming and they just built a brand new, beautiful facility mm-hmm. and they had a big open house. And uh, so I not only prevented our leaders from going to that open house, but on the night of the open house, I drove to, it was our midweek service. I drove to the church. I was the first one there probably half hour early, maybe more, maybe 45 minutes. And our parking lot was full, not full, but it had probably probably half full anyway of their overflow of the carts. Their parking lot was full. And I thought, this can't be. We have a service. So I went over and I told the ushers, we have a service going on over here in about a half hour. You you got a bunch of cars over there. And they very dutifully, they ran out, grabbed keys, and they they moved every single one of their cars back into their parking lot and up to the highway, busting at the seams. Now, mind you, Bill, our church would maybe get 10 cars on a good midweek service. Right. And uh, so (laughs) I remember looking at this thinking, I hope our people show up. And uh, yeah, about 10 cars showed up. Okay. We literally filling up about, about less than a fourth of the, of the parking lot. And I, I was so embarrassed about my own, even then as a young pastor, I was so embarrassed by my own actions. And uh, uh, so that was where my zeal just got away from me got completely away from me. And it. I'm thankful that I was there for a dozen years because it took about that long to restore my, my relationship <laughs> with that church. I did restore my relationship and my reputation, but it took quite a while. But you're saying there was some some f- sort of humiliation once, you, once it dawned on you? What had happened? Yes, I was humiliated. I, you know, I mean, certainly there was rumblings over there over what I had done. I mean, it didn't go public or anything like that. But I was... The Spirit of God really convicted me that what I did was incredibly unloving. I mean, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor. There was nothing loving about what I did. We had room in our parking lot for the handful of cars that were going to show up. I didn't have to do anything. But I chose to on the basis of, uh, I don't even know what the basis of it was, just uh, exclusivity, uh, being ultra-separatist. I don't know what it was. Mm. It was just wrong-headed, wrong-hearted thinking. And so I committed not to, you know, to, to love my neighbor 
regardless of religious affiliation, whether he would he or she was a brother in Christ or not, I'm still required to love my neighbor, and that was not a loving action. Well, the book is Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. There are a number of examples of this in Scripture, right, of, of such. Yes, there can, can you maybe touch on, on one or two? Well, the, the one that's most obvious to me is Peter, because he— and he writes about it. If you look at, if you read First Peter and you read it with with the lens of the gospel on you, you'll see him repeatedly saying things that are alluding to his own blunders. You know, uh, as a as a zealot himself. Yep. You know, and uh, so in his own ways of leading. So he would be he would be one. David, of course, is the mm. basis of the book. Psalm fifty one is where uh, David. So this is really was the biblical basis. I, I gave you the experiential basis, but the biblical basis, and that's more important, of course, was Psalm 51. What really hit me in that bill was was David in that famous uh, psalm. He's you know he's confessing his sin. We know his, it tells us in the you know the introduction to that psalm that this is after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know when we know the history of that particular abject, repentant psalmist. And yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's no mention of murder. There's no mention of adultery. There's no mention of some, all of these things that he did around the murder of Uriah and all of that. None of those are mentioned, but there's no question in anybody's mind when you read that psalm, that's what he's repenting of. Mm -hmm. And it's, and there's no question in anybody's mind that he is repenting. 35 first person pronouns in that psalm, Mm. 35. I mean, we think of Psalms that are just giving praise to God. This is, he puts it on himself. And that's why I say very early on in the book, the only time to put me first is when you're repenting uh, of your sin. And that's what David does. And I, and I realize that David's Psalm has been eternally embedded in the word of God for us. Uh, he's not culpable for that sin anymore. He wasn't then. He wasn't even then. He'd been forgiven, right? I mean, that was the time when when Nathan said, your sin's been forgiven, but you got, you know, you know, you can choose your sins, but not your consequences, you know? So that was the biblical basis of it. He's, he's another character. And of course there are others. Well, the subtitle of your book, A Retractions, is Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. And so you're saying, well, a couple of things. I wonder if you could elaborate. Humility doesn't necessarily follow humiliation. And B then, how do you cultivate yeah. Humility. It's one thing to be humbled. It's another thing to be humble. Hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can still be angry or. Yeah. We've all been humbled. We've all had humiliating things happen. Mm-hmm. But then to be humble as a result of that, to embrace what has happened, to own, so to speak, what you have done. And that is key. And I think to be able and to be willing to go back there and tell some of those stories that don't put you in a great light, but they do demonstrate the fact that you're willing to express your humanness, your struggle, your gratitude for God, bringing people into your life that helped you see see yourself better because you saw God better. Those are all ways in which we cultivate humility after our humiliating circumstance. And I think it's necessary in our life, especially when you think, Bill, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Christianity Today did a 
their podcast that they had. They did that whole Mark Driscoll thing. I'll bet. I mean, almost everybody had to, I mean, listen to that. It was just, it was like watching a train wreck, you know, or a car accident. You you didn't want to listen to it, but you had to listen to it, you know? And uh, this is sort of the, this is sort of the antithesis of that. Uh, how do we, I think if we're not going to go there, especially if you're a leader or if you're aspiring to be a leader, if you're a strong leader like myself, you really need to grasp the concept of cultivating humility after your humiliation. Uh, and I don't want to just throw Mark, I don't know the heart of mm-hmm. Mark Driscoll any more than you do, but what talent that man had and has, oh, yeah. I mean, brilliant, a brilliant man in so many ways, mm-hmm. but, but the idea of genuine humility just doesn't seem to come out. And so I think this is, this is sort of a, this is sort of a, a caveat to all those who aspire Christian leadership to live a humble life. Often you hear that humility is something that other people can see in you or see in another person, but you can't see it in yourself. Is humility something? Can you can you sense that you you are you are being humbled in, in a in, in a scriptural way? I think the sign. I do mention this in the book. Uh, uh, if you'll recall, I talk about the the sooner you confess your sin, the more sensitive you will remain to your sins. And so I, there's another part where I talk about not ignoring the Holy Spirit. You, you remember the, I talk, there's a chapter I have in there. It's, I'm sure it's had some knee slapping moments for some where I, I tell it pulpit sins. Mm. Some of the things that have come out of my mouth, you know, in the pulpit, uh, you know, when, I mean, <laughs> you want to give an example? <laughs> well, there's, you know, the, you know, I, I, the most famous one was, and was when I was, I was whipped into a frenzy. I was going through the Genesis account of the birth of, of, uh, of Jacob and, you know, the meaning of Yahab, you know, and this uh, heel grabber deceiver. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, I don't know why anybody would ever name their kid Jacob, (laughs) but we must've had five Jacobs in our church when I said that. Oh, wow. And, uh, and it was just, I mean, my sermon was circling the drain immediately when I said that. And, uh, in fact, you know, one of them is actually on staff at our church today. That is, that is the mother of one of them is on staff and, uh, boy, I had to make a beeline to them. They weren't on staff then, but, uh, uh, I had to come to my senses then. And as soon as I did, I went to them and I asked for forgiveness and to your question. So back to your question, I think the sooner we, once the Spirit of God interacts with our conscience and all of our listeners, including you, Bill, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's kind of hard to define, isn't it? Uh, hence the question. It's a little bit like the Supreme Court judge, uh, Justice who was asked to define pornography back in the 60s. Remember, he said, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. I think the same could be said about being sensitive to our sins. I mean, I if we're sensitive to God, we're spending time in the word of God, then I think the spirit of God will alert us. And it's in that moment that we have to respond. If you don't respond in that moment or shortly thereafter, I think you're in trouble. Uh, I give an illustration, actually a very contemporary one that had occurred uh, at our gym uh, in the book. And it, and in fact, it had just happened when I wrote about it. I might as well write about this. And, uh, I mean, I was up on the elliptical cranking it out and I was sweating and going and, you know, everybody in the gym's got their earbuds in and, and, uh, my voice carries. And I was talking to somebody on the phone while I was running and 
there was a gal that was probably five feet from me and she gestured to me, you know, keep it down, kind of keep it down. And I was, I kind of looked at her, I kind of waved her off, kind of like I rolled my eyes and waved her off, like as if to say, you're exaggerating. Well, as soon as I did that, she turned around her back back to me again. And I mean, as soon as that came out of my mouth, Bill, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I knew what I had done. I'd gone way too far. And but I kept stayed on the elliptical and I I just thought, Lord, what what was that? What what was it about me that I, that why did I do that? And I asked him to forgive me. And I shortly thereafter walked around, asked. I, I introduced myself to her. I didn't know her from Eve. And I, I told her what I did was rude. I asked her to forgive me. She did forgive me. We had a nice conversation afterwards. But I think that's the answer to your question. That's how you stay sensitive. And your question was, do you, how can you know if you're growing in that sense or that humility? I think the answer is ask yourself how you respond when you're confronted by the Spirit of God in the moment. I, I know I've got to let you go here in just a minute, Pastor Nemers. Uh, you, you, you say that um, there's an importance of publicly confessing public sins. Is that right? I, I, what does that look like? I mean, is that obviously as a, as, as a pastor, you're kind of a, a public figure, obviously. We're not all public figures, but right. what, what does that look like, publicly confessing a public sin? Yeah, well, it, it really gets back to the old adage that the sphere of offense— is uh, dictates the sphere of the confession. If I sin against you, Bill, it's my responsibility to go to you, not to your radio program, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, I, and I give the example of it at church. And, you know, if in that, in the chapter on, pu on pulpit sins, I, I give an example of, again, I've been here 25 years. I, the church is 13, 14, and 1,500 people. It's a pretty good sized church. Mm -hmm. uh, and lots of opportunities to, for, faux pas and this and that, not just the, why would anybody name their kid Jacob? There are other ones. And so what, and this is really a fun, really cool thing. And you might be alluding to this when you said it, but there was one time it was a Sunday night. I was teaching on why, to, why we love the Bible, why we should study the Bible. And, and I asked for a show of hands, how many people would, uh, would just commit to reading the Bible for at least five to 10 minutes every day. And hands were going up all over the place. And there was a guy sitting right in the front and his name was Bob. And I went to I went to Bible college with Bob. I knew this guy. I'd known this guy for years. We weren't like buddies, but we knew each other. Mm -hmm. And he didn't raise his hand. Oh. And so and so this was a this was a teaching time. It wasn't a preaching time. But I'm on the pulpit, and I said, "Come on, Bob, you're not raising your hand." And he just stared at me. And it was it was I mean it literally defined awkward. And I sort of muddled my way through it and went on teaching. And I knew in my heart, okay, I really messed up there. Mm. I I put Bob on the spot and should not have done that. Mm. I called him up the next day. I said, Bob, I'm so sorry. He said, Pastor, I've already forgiven you. I said, No, I thank you, but I I I got to ask for forgiveness. I I called you out. I shouldn't have done that. He explained to himself, Pastor, Ecclesiastic Five says, you know, you know, don't make a harsh uh, a commitment. Uh, these, you know, I mm. I take a vow very seriously and. I love my Bible, but I just wasn't ready to make a public decision. Mm -hmm. And I said, I respect that, Bob. And because of that, but I need to, I need to tell the congregation because I said it in front of hundreds of people. No, no, you don't need to do that. I said, no, I really do, Bob. I mean, this isn't just between you and me now because hundreds of people yeah. witnessed it. So, so I, the very next Sunday, I said to our congregation during the early announcement time, I said, I sinned against Bob when I yada, yada, yada. 
I, I, and I, I've asked Bob to forgive me privately. And now I'm asking you, Bob, as I looked at him, will you forgive me publicly? And he just nodded his head. He did. Hmm. And that was it. And a couple of weeks later, we were interviewing a couple to become members of the church. And here they had, they were enthusiastic about joining our church. And somebody said, well, why, why have you chosen our church? Cause they moved into our area. We hadn't evangelized them. And they said, well, we were actually thinking about another church too. We were kind of weighing between Sailorville and this other church, both another good Bible believing gospel centered church. But the reason we came to Sailorville is they said, we've been going to gospel churches for 27 years. And that's the first time we ever saw a pastor Hmm. ask for forgiveness publicly. And when we saw that, we said, that's the church we need to be in. Hmm. So that was kind of a neat little blessing on top of it all. Well, the book is Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. Our time has really flown by. Pastor Pat Nemers is my guest. He's the author. Well, Pastor Nemers, there are many more examples and much more to talk about. That's for people that uh, can uh, get the book, can read it for themselves. But what is your hope for the book? I mean, we, we I think you've laid out what it is that you're trying to have people reflect upon, but what is your hope? How do you hope that this book changes people's uh, lives, changes their Christian lives? I do hope it does. And you might argue that my target audience is young, aspiring leaders and really male leaders. Mm -hmm. But you know what? In the reviews on Amazon, I think half of them are women. Uh, I've had a great response from women. And my my desire is that people really do understand what it means to walk humbly. And it's not something that happens overnight. And it's a joyful walk. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do need to remain sensitive. To be candid, what is the opposite of humility but pride? And we all are repulsed by pride. Even proud people are repulsed <laughs> by proud yeah, people. Right. And uh, so I would say as Christians, I would I want all the Christians— possible to get a hold of this book, to read it for their own personal devotion. There's a lot of scripture. There's a cultivating humility section at the end of every chapter you probably saw with scripture there for them to meditate upon or memorize. And uh, my hope would be that they would grow in grace and sanctification as a result. Well, just kind of a footnote, you make the statement in your book that these times of humiliation are designed by God. They're not yes. accidents. They're not something that just happened to us, but they're part of God's plan for each individual believer. That's correct. If we believe that God is sovereign, and we do, and if we believe that God is providential, and I understand the providence of God is that which connects the dots and everything that takes place in our life, then we know that nothing happens by happenstance. And if we believe that, then we're confident that God brings these situations into our lives. Some of them again, are humbling situations, not of our own doing, like the chapter on the death of my wife. I didn't kill my wife. I mean, my wife died in my arms of a heart attack. Mm, mm. But, and it was like, and it put me in a very humiliating situation, but God providentially, sovereignly allowed it. And in the process showed intolerances in my life that I did not see. And I'm convinced I would not have seen them had he not taken the love of my life out of my life. And those things that happen are because we have a gracious, loving, providential God. I know your listeners, for the most part, already believe that, but this book will confirm it, I believe. I hope. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Pat Nemers, pastor of Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa, and author of Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. 
Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Stephanie Phillips with a touching testimonial to the influence of late Pastor Tim Keller in her life. It was intellectually stimulating in a way I had not been exposed to before. He quoted literature and film and music, and it was just on all fronts, you know? I mean, I was challenged emotionally, I was challenged intellectually, and um, I didn't know that, that church could be like that. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.